Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it Earlier this year, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever made an announcement that's only happened one other time in the history of our 40-year-old organization. That announcement was, we have a brand new president and chief executive officer. So to backtrack, Jeff Finden, founder, one of the founders of the organization, was the organization's first president and CEO. And in the year 2000, Howard Vincent was the second. So for four decades, there's only been two, Marilyn. And now (laughs) we're able to introduce number three, Marilyn Vetter, president and CEO of the Habitat organization, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And for frequent listeners to our podcast, you'll, you'll recognize Marilyn's name. And Marilyn's voice, she's been on episode number 46 when we were together at the Fort Pier Grasslands along with Matt Kaharski and and Clyde. And also episode number 79 with uh, Nancy Annisfeld, who is uh, responsible for bringing you to the National Board of Directors. So been on a couple podcasts, but you have a different role now. I do. And uh, we're going to learn, and you can hear Marilyn's voice. I, I'm looking at my, my outline. I spelled your name wrong once. There's two L's there. Oh, I didn't even notice it. I, I, th- <laughs> I won't make Usually that mistake. Usually it's two N's. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, today, new perspective, um, Marilyn Veta, the new president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, joins me on this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Thank you very much for for uh, joining me. And we, we It's a little bit, you know, a few weeks after Pheasant Fest, and you've been in this role a little bit now, but you had jury duty. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have. So now we're, we're able to record. What I don't, have you been on a jury? No. In fact, <laughs> I, so I'm on jury duty the entire month. Which okay. just basically means I'm on standby. Okay. And every couple of days, they let me know that all the cases have settled. <laughs> and so I just, I've kind of cleared my calendar a little bit just in case anything big happens. But so far, and you know, I, we've talked about it. I have wanted to be a, on a jury my entire life. <laughs> this just wasn't great timing. <laughs> it was not great timing. But, um, and so that's probably why I'm not going to get to serve is because I have, have lambasted that I am, oh my God, this is terrible timing. Now I'm not going to get to serve. So, so what, what happened first? The um, acknowledgement of being jur- serving jury duty or getting the uh, president and CEO job? I, it came literally a couple of days after. <laughs> it came on February 3rd, actually. Okay. Was, so my I started on the 1st, mm-hmm. and the notice came in the mail on February 3rd. <laughs> like, this is not way to wait, win friends at work. By the way, I might be gone the month of March. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just wild. <laughs> well, on, on today's episode, we're going to 
dive deep into your past. <laughs> that sounds weird. Right? I say, should I get my counseling seat warmed up? <laughs> We're going to break you down psychologically today. <laughs> I don't see a bright light in the room anymore. <laughs> uh, well, but we are going to talk a little bit about your background, um, where you grew up, um, your, your, your career path, your love of bird dogs. And, you know, a, a question that I'm sure you're getting fatigued with, what's your vision for the future? Because I've witnessed you being asked that um, uh, countless times uh, at, at already. Um, but we'll have a fun conversation. And I'm going to do things uh, a little bit different to just let people get to know you. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I... As, as I normally do, I plan kind of an outline to think about the story arc of our podcast. And as most podcasts or interviews, they put lightning rounds at the end. Well, we're going to change that today. We're going to go <laughs> lightning round at the beginning just to um, get a feel for who you are as a person. Spice it up a little Sp- bit. You know, All right. D- do the opposite. That's what I've always... Uh, um, that's a philosophy that's worked well in a lot of things Excellent. in life. So. So let's, um, you are a hardcore bird hunter that's going to come out throughout today. Um, but tell me about your favorite hunting oriented moment. What immediately comes to mind? It's not so much a moment as a place. Okay. There is a particular field. We've talked about it before in the grasslands up here that it's, it's just our favorite field to walk. Hmm. And it's not always just because we've moved birds there. We have moved a lot of birds there. It's the way my dogs can work that field, way Clyde and I can work it together, and our friends have joined us on that a lot. It's also where I got my first double on Sharptail. But <laughs> it really is that that field. We usually save it for the end of the day, and we park on top of that hill, and we feed the dogs and sometimes we watch the sunset or sometimes we wait till it gets pretty late and mm. right before sunset we head back into town and it's just one of those moments that culminates the, the day the entire hunt and the dogs are chill and they're sleeping in their boxes and everything's quiet and you can just kind of hang out especially when we have friends with yeah it's one of those places that really means a lot to us is it was it like that from the very first time you hunted that field, or is it a collection of memories? It really is probably more a collection. Mm-hmm. Like, this was the first time that uh, we brought a couple of different friends with this year that they'd ever actually worked that field with us. And it was the first time that uh, a couple of my my female friends were with us mm-hmm. on that spot. And so it, I think it's just there's been a lot of firsts. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because we take people there because we find it really special. Mm. Um, but a couple of years ago, we also spread some ashes there mm. of some dogs that have hunted those fields before. So I, I think it's really just a... Some some dogs. So yeah, we had mul- two. Okay. We had two. We kind of had a rough year that year. And, and we also knew that we just wanted to save them. Mm. They were dogs that, you know, they were really bird dog specialists in the in the prairies. They did really great out there. And so... I'm sitting on four boxes at home right now that I haven't decided oh what gosh. to do with. So, uh, but those two just, it made sense. And um, it was a really special moment. Mm. So, and that's where they'd want to be too. Mm. Hopefully someday someone can do that for me. So I called it a lightning round and I'm already breaking that rule. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> but, we both did. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, 
couple of things that I know. I sense a place. To me, the sense of place is maybe at the top of my love of the bird hunting in the outdoor. I mean, I love the connection of the dogs and I love wild game, but that sounds like what you're talking about is how I feel about certain places that, you know, I'm not a super religious person, but when I am in the right spot and I have a sense of place, I feel like there's something bigger than I can comprehend. Yeah. How how's that resonate with you? Well, I call it my holy ground. Mm. So it, it, it feels a lot like it. I think the other thing for me is on that hilltop, it, it looks a lot like my family farm mm. where I grew up. There's cattle all around it and the pastures around it. So it, I don't, it just culminates a lot of different feelings for me, but it, it does feel spiritual. And for me, spiritual is that connection to nature and to the, to the environment and that it makes you feel like you're part of something much bigger than you and much mm. bigger than your life. Mm. That connects to the dog ashes in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had bird dogs longer than, than I have. I've got, you said you have four right now that you're thinking about what the proper, I, I've got, I've got two urns um, at home and I haven't come to terms with what to do with them. How, and you said, you know, these two that you've spread here, that it was the right thing to do. How, how do you navigate that? Because I, I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. So I have one that's in an urn that I didn't even count. She is always going to be in an urn. Mm-hmm. At home with you. Yeah. She's not because she was more special than the rest. That is what she was somewhat of a prima donna. Mm. She was also the matriarch. And she didn't like to get her feet wet. She would, she'd run through mud and everything else, but when she wasn't hunting, mm-hmm. she was a bit of a, a prissy little thing. <laughs> I have one of those yeah. at home right now. Like, <laughs> she'd roll in mud, but when we were out hunting, and when we were not hunting, she did not want to get dirty. And mm. so I was like, I don't think she'd want to be spread. I mm. think she'd want to be dry and comfortable in mm. her. <laughs> Usually it's the, the, the place where I've hunted with him that was the, the strongest memory mm. that is, is attached to that dog. We... Mm. We lost a dog several years ago in the field. Um, she had a bilateral pneumothorax, and it was a horrible story. Probably the worst day, of, one of the worst days of my life. But she died in my arms, mm-hmm. and and so we didn't have the ability to have her cremated. We had a barrier, mm-hmm. and we had had been sitting on two boxes at that time, and didn't know what to do with them. And that day, we were like. We're going to bury him with her. Wow. But uh, bilateral pneumothorax, what's that mean? Both of her lungs collapsed at the same time. And from? We assume from seeds. Don't know. Oh, okay. It was before, this was so long ago, most of us didn't really know anything. And now I know so much more that Mm -hmm. I would have known the symptoms, seen Mm. the symptoms, would have stopped hunting her. Mm. And, you know, she basically just ran until she ran out of air. Mm. And, you know, dogs don't know how to communicate when they're, right. you know, when they're sick. So she literally just ran herself into the ground. And, uh, and so that day it was like, yeah, we're not going to let her be alone. Mm. And, and that made sense. Mm. Our first two dogs, uh, they're kind of funny. They, um, they were like an old married couple, even, mm. uh, though they, they were not. Um, but they, they were, they died within 11 days of each other. Wow. 
of the same thing, which was really strange. But they were our very two first short hairs. And Mm. our, our legacy back then, we were still living in Bismarck, and they were more from field trial lines. So they were, let's say they had more energy than most. And so what, before we'd get to the farm, as soon as we got onto gravel, they were, of course, up and active, right? And then the last two miles, we'd let them out, and they'd run on the gravel road the last two miles to the farm. <laughs> and so what we – and the first dog was Clyde's, and the second dog had been mine that we had trained and tested through Navda. And so we stopped two miles out, opened the boxes, and he – held one box out his window, and I held mine out mine. Oh, wow. And we just, we ran them the last two miles home. Wow. So they've all had their own, yeah, just as as unique as they were, Mm -hmm. and that's why the last four we've just been, I don't know, we haven't really decided Mm. what to do with them, and now I just have a new one that I just, uh, my first day at work, I lost my last, our our 15-year-old. This is Chappie, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know what I'm going to... I'm not ready to part with him yet, mm. but I don't know where I will. Probably He'll end up in a pheasant slough somewhere. He was a cattail-busting crazy... <laughs> he he wasn't built for the prairie. Mm. He was built for throwing himself at cattails and everything that was in it. <laughs> so yeah. that's where he'll end up. You've kind of reached your dream job, but you've had a couple of rocky... Like you mentioned, yeah. that your very first day, 15-year-old pup yeah. passes... And then jury duty, which <laughs> you actually enjoyed, although yeah. it hasn't come to fruition for what? Guilty! Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or innocent. Or innocent. <laughs> the other th- good thing that happened on the very first day, though, uh-huh. is that there was a litter of puppies um, that were Chappie's grandchildren mm. uh, that were born that exact same day. Mm. And and we've been helping the friends out that had them and we're raising them the last four weeks of, of before <laughs> they're ready to go home. And so... <laughs> raising a litter on your first month, too. Yeah, just <laughs> let's throw a couple other curveballs into the world. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll get back to the, the lightning round concept. Okay. <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I know. Listeners are like, Bob, you're never going to be able to pull off a lightning round. (laughs) Um, All right. uh, Favorite wild game dish? I like to keep it pretty simple. Okay. And so for me, uh, particularly if it's uh, grouse, sharp-tailed grouse, um, is I just take Montreal steak seasoning, Mm. olive oil, let them sit for quite a while and get them to you know close to room temp and mm-hmm. then hot hot grill serum and eat them medium rare to rare and that's that's really my favorite mm-hmm. I, I like to be able to taste the game mm-hmm. so I'm not a big sauce kind of fan mm-hmm. um I um pheasant is a little different I think you tend to add more um flavoring to it that way but not when it comes to it's like my deer i like to have my venison or elk burgers we had elk burgers last night and i like it to keep it pretty simple yeah yeah you you kind of grew up on sharp tails right i mean then growing up where you did in north mm-hmm. dakota that was that was your starting point right they were all around us uh it's funny my my brothers didn't hunt a lot of upland birds really but the only upland birds we had around the farm were grouse hmm. and huns we didn't have pheasant on the farm at the time. There are some there now. Hmm. They were bigger deer hunters than they were anything. Hmm. Um, all right, pop culture question for you. Your favorite movie? 
Oh, uh, Gladiator. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. I could watch it over, and I do. I watch it over and over. <laughs> it is it's either one. that or Christmas Vacation. <laughs> Vastly different. Oh, right. <laughs> but I watch that every year, and I I can say I can you know, cite most of it by heart, and I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both good, but they are, they are dramatically different. <laughs> yes, um, they are. Favorite musical band? I'm going to cheat on this one a little bit. Um, Playing for Change, which really isn't mm. a band. It is a collection of 1,400 artists across the globe that um, play for change, to, to make change to society, to raise money. to huh. and, and they they have a bit of a island flair to their music. And I whenever I listen to any of their music, it it feels very zen like oh. i it just i love and i love the concept mm. can you listen to music and work at the same time as long as it doesn't have vocalization okay <laughs> me, me neither like it, if there's lyrics there's no oh. way i can oh, yeah. have it on because i i think I'm about too, it yeah i'm thinking it, i'm into the music in. yep same here yeah. but i when i when i write sometimes i like to put on Headspace, the app, has hmm. a focus music mm-hmm. section, and that's when I listen to that, hmm. which is completely without words. Otherwise, I would be, yeah. It's like I can't watch TV before I go to bed because I watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Favorite TV show? <sighs> TV show. Or well, what are you watching right now? What's got you hooked? So we've always been big Trekkies, so we're watching Picard. No, I would never have pegged you as a Trekkie. Really? I'm a a freak about it. In fact, when I was a kid, when the original Star Treks were on, I also, because I was also a a reader, I had the entire collection of books, too. See, Trouble with Tribbles? I mean, how could you not know that one? I don't. (laughs) I've never even heard of it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We're big Trekkie fans. Really? This is... Okay, so now we have a... I, I don't know if he likes Trek, Star Trek, but a consistency between you and Howard. Howard is like a science fiction reading buff. Did you know this? I like, did not know that. He, he reads the weirdest stuff, <laughs> like UFOs and aliens and science fiction mm. stuff. I don't like to read it so much because I mm. think to me that's such a bit. I love to read, mm-hmm. but that's not usually what I read. Well, but to we be do... fair, it's audiobooks that he's oh, listening to. okay. Yeah. Yeah, I... No, I, I do love science fiction movies. Hmm. Like, um, oh, what's the Matt Damon movie? Is it just Mars? Oh, uh, the, uh, I, I know which one you're talking yeah, about, but I don't that's know. That's one I of my favorite it. movies, too. Really? I do love a lot of science fiction. Hmm. But we talked about Wednesday. Yeah. Oh, man, I loved that series. And I'm, I was shocked how much I liked that series. Okay. So, um, yeah. Queen's Gambit was one of my favorites, too. So, yeah. yeah, Wednesday was very fun. Um, <laughs> it was. What I'm hooked on at the moment is um, Daisy Jones and the Six. Oh. Uh, it's an Amazon um, about a loosely based off of Fleetwood Mac. So mm. um, <clears throat> uh, kind of 70s setting, uh, female and male lead vocalists who kind of take on the Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham roles of... There's romance there, but there's not supposed to be, and there's songwriting, and oh so it's it's a pretty good. Uh, I'll recommend that. I'll check it out. Um, all right. Uh, when you're choosing dinner, are you red meat, fish, pork chop, chicken, seafood? Okay. Salmon probably is my go-to. And what are you drinking on the side? Hmm. I don't drink a lot of alcohol anymore. Um, 
I if I do choose to have a cocktail with my dinner, it's usually red wine. Hmm. Um, if I was going to drink, like calories didn't matter, I would drink a margarita. Okay. Yeah. And I, I really wish somebody could create a grid margarita that didn't have calories or alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, if somebody out there has a recipe, shoot it to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you say uh, so. You did say you like reading. What's uh, do you have a favorite book? I do have a couple. I this one I cheated a little bit too. There was two I I couldn't decide on, but probably if I had to pick one, it would be the story of Edgar Sattel. Hmm. Tell me about that. Story of it. So I don't want to spoil it for somebody that hasn't read it. But it is the story of, it actually takes place in Wisconsin. Uh, a family um, and then a young boy in a family, they, are, they raise working dogs. Hmm. And they create a, a line of working dogs. And it is really the only connection this young boy in the family has. Hmm. He is a socially awkward, doesn't really have good, strong connections to the outside world. And it is just this beautiful story of mm-hmm. how he finds a way in the world through his connection of, of creating this line of working dogs. Mm. And lots of tragedy, of course, um, amongst it, but it is just absolutely eloquently written. Mm. Dogs are pretty important to you. Has <laughs> it always been that way? Yeah. yeah. I, I grew up. You know, we all, we had mutts, um, mm. and then eventually we got a couple of um, American Standard Collies. Mm. But I was always the one on the farm that brushed them and took care of them, and I, I just they were always my buddies. And maybe because I was the youngest, and the my sister that was right before me was four years older, and then five years between then and the next one, so there was nine between us. I spent a lot of those early years alone because mm-hmm. they were in school. And my mom was a busy farm wife and driving truck and everything else. And so I just kind of meandered around the farm by myself, you know, With me your, and the dog yeah. all the time. Yeah. What's your favorite uh, dog's name in your life? This one is really hard because anybody that knows Clyde and I know that we obsess about our dog names. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put <laughs> inordinate amount of dogs. Th- I'm guilty and, there too. Oh my God. Our last dog, I finally was like, Clyde, he's 12 weeks. We have <laughs> to give the dog a name. And uh, probably if I had to pick one, it would probably be Sonic. Hmm. It was fun to say. Mm-hmm. It was easy to say. And her name was Shockwave. Mm. Roughneck Shockwave. And we wanted it to be Mach 1, but we couldn't because AKC doesn't allow you to end their names with a Roman numeral. Huh. We, uh, we went with Shockwave. Um, but she, maybe it's because it's also the dog. Yeah. She just is probably going to be my dog of a lifetime. I tell everybody that they mm. get a dog of a lifetime. And Do you believe that? You get one dog of a lifetime? Yeah, because I think they're all really special. Mm-hmm. But you get one that's the whole package. Really? She was, yeah, she was. And in fact, um, she's on um, the invitational banner that Navda uses at at their invitational every year. And every year I see it, I cry. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what it, she just, her personality, she was, 
her structure, her talent, everything about her was just absolutely exquisite. There was nothing I would have changed in her. Would Clyde's answer be identical to yours, that Sonic is the dog of a lifetime? No, I think he would... Hmm. He would probably... He'd pick one of two dogs, either. I'd say his current dog, Creed, who he believes is his... Um, and his name is... Um, oh, oh boy. His registered name is something precision. Uh, I'll think of it. Um, shame on me for not having that one. Or he'd pick his dog, Cash, who was Man in Black. <laughs> and that was... He talked about a dog that just put every ounce of his heart into the field. Mm. And... Yeah, he has lots of good stories about him. <laughs> he was, I'd say either or Cash or Creed would probably be one of his. So we've mentioned favorite. Clyde a couple of times. Tell us who Clyde is. So Clyde. Clyde is my husband of 35 and a half years. We met in high school and we started dating when I was a senior. And he's the one that introduced me to bird hunting, actually. <laughs> um, he decided where we're failing at the lightning round, aren't That's we? That's all right. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, and so we uh, he toughed it out with me while I was in college and, and traveled around while I had to finish my college, and then we moved back to Bismarck, and he took up dog training then. When, you know, yeah. it, it, he's always had an amazing knack with dogs. Yeah. And when we moved to Illinois, he, he was like, all right, so we're uprooting again, and I, you need to figure out, like, what my next career is going to be as we move again. And, and I was like, man, you're you're great at this. Why don't you, mm. you know, and it's been kind of like history ever since then. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he truly has titled more dogs in North American Bristol Hunting Dog Association. He's run over 300 dogs. He has over a hundred prize one utility dogs. I mean, he's just, he is, he just is exceptional at it. Mm. He has more talent in his pinky than I'll ever have when <laughs> it comes to dog training. And I'm a really good puppy wrangler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a trainer. <laughs> and you've been married 35 years? Mm-hmm. What was your wedding song? Do you remember? I know. I was... Uh, no, I don't. Um, I guess I'm not very <laughs> sappy. I don't remember. <laughs> it might have been, because I'm thinking back at the time. Now, this would have been the, like the wedding song at the dance. Mm-hmm. It probably would have been Randy Travis's um, Forever and Ever Amen. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. I, if, if I had to pick one today, that would probably be the one I'd pick, too. If you tying the hunting together and your marriage together, is there a, a moment <clears throat> where you felt like you were in the right place at the wrong right time together with Clyde? Is it that same place in Fort Pierre? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Um, I think, or the or the only other time I can think of actually would have been super early on, because when I first started hunting with him, we didn't have dogs. And I'll have to tell you, I wasn't as sold on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, first of all, you're a poor college kid. You don't have the right gear. So I'm repurposing gear that shouldn't be used for hunting. Mm-hmm. And it was like his old hand-me-down stuff. So nothing fit. And I didn't have a gun that really fit me. And I mean, it was it was less than advantageous. It's not. It's, I, in fact, I at one point wrote an article about how not to introduce your significant other into hunting. And it, for NABDA, you yeah, wrote that? Yeah. yeah, so it's like, if you really want your wife to go hunting, you know, you might want to buy hiking shoes that fit. And we didn't have the money, so it wasn't that he didn't want to. It's just we didn't have the money. I, you know, I was still in college. Um, but when we got our first little short hair, 
And we took her. It was her very. It was opening day, Sharp Tail, and it was in near Butte, North Dakota. Hmm. And that was the heydays. There were there were birds everywhere. Hmm. And she was not quite three months old. And boy, you know, we were greenhorns. We're lucky we didn't make a gun shy dog because we took her out and we uh, pounded a ton of birds over. And she, uh, we shot a bird, glided out, and she it floated under a bunch of just nasty thickets and she was crawling around under there and she came out it was almost as big as her you Mm. know and that that moment kind of like was a culmination of this is cool this is Mm. where we need to be that's fun yeah it was a I, i we have a picture of that day and it's old and faded out but man that was a it's a great memory one day one hunt, one person. Describe it for me. I was telling you, I had fun with this one. Um, it would be in October of 1804. Yeah, so there's the distinction, okay. right? Alive yeah. or dead. So 1804, yeah. okay. Western North Dakota. Okay. And Lewis and Clark would be on their expedition. Wow. Hmm. And I would want, now I don't know if she was a hunter, but I'd want to go out with Sakakawea, hmm. or however people in North Dakota pronounce it, Sakakawea. Some people say Sakajawea. Mm-hmm. And I would want to walk with her for hmm. a couple of reasons. One is just to get her perspective hmm. on the expedition and her place in that expedition, her place in the world. Hmm. She had such a you know, some challenges in her life and how, how life presented to her. And honestly, just to see to see clouds of birds that, you know, you read about that, you know, black in the sky. I mean, right. it, would, it would be fascinating to see. Mm. To me, it would be to experience the lands that we talked about mm-hmm. before they were really touched by, by anything and to see what it was like. And to see how it's different from today and what are we missing? What are we missing in that restoration process that is not as equal to that? Hmm. I, it just, it was, I don't know why that hit me, but when you, I was like, that would be the place that I'd want to be. And how close in your mind is that to where you grew up? And is that part of it? Being able to see yeah. the, the transformation, yeah. the difference? It's not that, well, I suppose it'd be about mm, three and a half hours okay. probably. Cause so we, it's a little ways. Yeah, we grew up smack dab in the middle. And, you know, I would say they probably focus more around, you know, Bismarck's only about an hour and a half from us. And they certainly had encampments there. But, you know, from there to the western North Dakota, it's, you know, you get to that Dickinson Beach area. It's yeah. about three and a half hours from where I grew up. It's amazing how dramatic North Dakota's landscape changes mm-hmm. when you cross the river and head west. Right, and you yeah. get into the Painted Canyon and um, Little, was it Little Missouri grasslands? Yeah, yeah. just dramatically different. It's spectacularly yeah. beautiful. Yeah. All right. So, transitioning from lightning round, that wasn't really a lightning round. <laughs> An <laughs> augmented we, lightning. Yeah, round. <laughs> but we got some good depth and good stories. Um, tell us about growing up in North Dakota and in your background. Let's. We're gonna. Hear the story of your life. We filled in some elements, but uh, where'd you grow up? So I always tell people my address is was convoluted. So we grew up on a farm about eight, not even eight miles, about six miles from Animus, North Dakota. 
My parents bought that ranch in 1951. Hmm. And our address was Martin, which was straight south of us, but I went to school in Harvey. <laughs> so I uh, grew up in Pierce County, went to school in Wells County. It's, it's kind of how, you know, small town mm-hmm. uh, North Dakota is. It's Rolling Hills Cattle Ranch, um, 900 acres. My brother still owns it today. And until just a few months ago, it's had cattle on it for probably, I don't know, 130, 150 wow. years, honestly. It's a, it's a beautiful patch of land that, you know, primarily has been untouched, and it's just native prairie. Mm. You know, most of it, now some of it has been tilled, but not a lot of it. And mm. so it's either pasture land or hayland. Mm. And so it's... Um, yeah, it was it was a really great way to grow up. It, you know, I'd say you didn't know we were there unless you saw us from an aerial view because we lived at the bottom of a valley. Hmm. And there was a nice, beautiful flat spot at the bottom of that valley where they built the homestead. But and we were truly at the end of the road. Hmm. And so And how many how many brothers and sisters again? I was the youngest of seven. Three brothers, three so sisters. Big family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, my my cousins would say not so big. My mom is was the oldest of 15 and wow. several of her s- siblings had 12 or wow. more children so huh. we had fun family reunions yeah how big was your high school graduating class 66 kids okay so relatively small yeah um growing up what did you want to be when you were a little kid i wanted to be an attorney and then be a supreme court justice and then uh, I'll love the I, jury duty. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be judge and jury. <laughs> In fact, when I was oh, talk about nerdy kid, huh. um, I would pretend that I was holding court huh. and the dogs would have to like sit there and be the, you know, the prosecutor, the defense attorney. And and because uh, I had nothing else to do. <laughs> so. Uh, if I wasn't working, that's what, I don't know. I grew up watching Barnaby Jones and mm. all that kind of stuff. And so I, I just, I loved it. And maybe because my big brother was always going to go to law school. Mm. I think he changed his mind once he went to college, but, um, and said, you know, I don't know if I want to be in school that long, but I always, always sure that's what I was going to do. I was mm. going to go to law school. Um, youngest of seven. Well, how does, you know, you always hear stories about being the oldest kid, the middle kid, what would you say about being the youngest of seven? How did that create your personality? I had the ability to learn from my siblings' successes and opportunities to improve <laughs> on things. <laughs> they, they'd be like, don't do that. Yeah, I did. That was really a bad idea. Mm. So I got to learn a lot from the mistakes that they have had to already live through. Um I also was really blessed by a family that had lots of love around it. You know, hmm. I always say we were, we were the Waltons. We were hmm. not a wealthy family. We were, you know, by all standards at the opposite end of that spectrum. But we had each other, you know, hmm. most Christmases and birthdays. We didn't exchange gifts. If we did, they were pretty small or they might have been fresh fruit or things hmm. like that. Because our socks, hmm. you know, it's what our parents didn't have much, but we had each other and and we're really lucky. We're the seven of us are still really close. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So, uh, the, you know, a lot of people say the youngest gets away with everything because mm-hmm. mom and dad are, are, you know, they like thrown in the towel. They're not going to. It doesn't sound like that. The, like there was that much discipline necessary with this. Uh, there kid. wasn't. But I have a funny story to tell you that everybody does say that. Mm-hmm. And I suppose things were 
I'm sure somewhat different mm-hmm. because you have less mouths to feed. You you know, have a little bit extra around. Um, but my mom was big on fairness, hmm. huge on fairness, hmm. and she she would say things like, "Your siblings couldn't be in cheerleading, so you can't be in cheerleading, mm-hmm. or you can't be in a sport because your siblings couldn't be in a sport." And it, my mother passed away a few years ago, and we still haven't hadn't gotten through some of her things. And so this year with the holidays, we were going through a couple of boxes that we had left. And we came across two sheets of paper hmm. where she had kept track of how much she had given towards each of us and whether if it was someone's college or someone's wedding. Wow. And from my oldest sister to me, there was only... I want to say like $200 difference And this so. is historical mm-hmm. capture. Wow. It's over 20 years because my oldest sister is 19 and a half years older than me. And wow. so I said, quite honestly, if we counted inflation, I got less than you all did. <laughs> <laughs> so that was how huh. they raised us. They yeah. really felt it was important to be very hmm. fair and that we had as close to each other's life experiences as they could hmm. could manage. It, are you a leader like that? Do you think that you're you you project the way mom treated you with all your siblings to be the same way with your team? And now I'm really yeah. psychoanalyzing. No, no, <laughs> I, I, th- I think to some degree, I yeah. I feel like everybody should have a space at that table, mm. and I try to be super cognizant about those that maybe aren't comfortable, and so I. I'll give you a story. I had a a gentleman on my team one time who was super introverted, but just wicked smart. Hmm. And it would be hard for him to engage in a meeting with a whole bunch of extroverts and a bunch of salespeople. But two days later after the meeting, he'd come to me with just these great ideas or Hmm. things to add to the conversation. And so it taught me a really good lesson that if I need someone – to be able to contribute in a meeting that isn't normally comfortable, then I might come to them two days in advance and say, hey, we're going to have a really deep conversation about this. I want you to have some time to think about it in advance so that you can have a place, seat at the table. Everybody processes things a little differently in a different different. timeline. And some people, uh, like me, think out loud, Mm -hmm. and we verbalize out loud, and others don't. Mm -hmm. And so it's the only way to try to equalize that a little bit. So I'm breaking the rules already. I'm jumping ahead. Um, <laughs> growing up on farm in North Dakota, I know you end up at University of North Dakota. Um, what led to that decision to go to UND? Probably two things. My two older siblings had gone. Okay. I knew that I was probably going to be in-state no matter what. I didn't have the ability to afford to, to not have in-state tuition. And honestly, the, the university decided it for me. Uh, out of the blue, I got a scholarship, a leadership scholarship, and they paid my tuition for a couple of years. And I was like, all right, no brainer. Mm-hmm. And and I, probably because I thought I was going to go to law school, I was going to probably go there anyway because mm-hmm. they have a law school. And so I think all things just led to there. And law school changed along the way to become broadcasting mm-hmm. communication so yeah. tell me about that so i it, i was an undecided student for quite a while which uh because i'm a very curious person which suited me well i took 
geology, geography. I, I mean, I took a million different classes to see what it was that I really wanted to do. And in the course of that, I took an introduction to communications. Hmm. And the director of the department taught the class. And he came up to me and said, I think you should think about this. I think you might be good at this. You're really inquisitive. Reporters have to be inquisitive. Mm -hmm. They have to listen well. And I hadn't even crossed my mind, really? quite honestly. And and so I started taking a couple more classes in the department and, and really I found my sweet spot. Hmm. I loved it. And I, at the same time, I took political science was my minor and I was like one class shy of a psych minor and one class shy of a history minor. I, mm -hmm. You know, you can see I done that social studies track. <laughs> and the curiosity, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so your first gig, your first job out of school is what? I was a, a reporter in KFYR-TV in Bismarck, and I covered part of the state capitol and all of local and county city government. So mm -hmm. school boards, county commissions, city commissions, those kinds of things. Cop shop. <laughs> and you, you eventually became an anchor, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you enjoy that time? I loved it. I think I actually was probably hardwired to be a... It's, for me, it's like the inquisitive part. Mm -hmm. And I did. I, I, I didn't... The anchoring wasn't as fun for me as the reporting. Huh. The, this, the coming together of stories yeah. and writing and merging the, the writing and the video and the editing because we did everything. Mm -hmm. I didn't shoot the video you know, our photographers did, but everything else was really up to us. And I loved that soup to nuts part of it mm -hmm. and, and building relationships, um, in city government and, and people in the community. It was, it was, I was well suited to it. And it's, it's an important component for the job you have now too, or at least mm -hmm. my interpretation of it is very helpful to be comfortable in front of a camera, in front of an audience, um, as the president and CEO and that, reporter's job that anchor job helped build that skill it it actually has been an amazing life skill mm -hmm. when I went into sales when I went into account management when I went into political advocacy the, the most important skills in life really are asking questions and listening mm -hmm. so tell me about the jump from political reporter or not political reporter to what's your next career step I had a good friend who was a pharmaceutical sales rep and said, man, you'd be great at this. I really was not sold on that at all. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't see myself as a salesperson. And she was like, it's not like that. It's not, you know, you're not selling copiers. You're, you're, you're really invested in your physicians and their patients. And so I interviewed for a job and I had a boss that saw something in me that I didn't think was was really there and I, I I enjoyed it I I only did that for a year and then I went into account management which was really more suited to me that was hmm. more getting to know an entire account you're knowing several people inside of account you're really getting to know their business as much as your own and finding those uh, mutual benefits that work together. And I really loved that. The other thing is that we were negotiating contracts. So I got to pretend I was an attorney too, a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always said I never got to be an attorney, but I pretended to be one on TV. And, and so that was really fun. And mm -hmm. then after a while, I, you know, I got that political itch again. Mm -hmm. And, and so I really got to blend all things together that, mm. The love that I built for the life sciences area and my political 
itch as well because I, I always really did. I You know, farm kids grow up watching the news at least back when I was a kid mm-hmm. because you watch either the weather or the commodity report or both um, at every meal. And and so for me, you know, I grew up watching Walter Cronkite and Tom Brokaw on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. And, and so being able to just be back in that space was – and getting to experience the political world from a different perspective and mm-hmm. having a part in that was, was really rewarding. So we think about communications degree, reporter, anchor, leap into pharmaceutical and going from sales to sort of project management, right? And then – then management and complexity, which I know, as we've talked, made one of the important components of the qualifications you bring to this job is really complex organizations and complex business matrix, right? So it, talk about, because for, uh, I think, a lot of people, they see the pharmaceutical component of your career, which is a big piece of it, and they're like, well, how does that translate to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? Explain how that translates in your mind. Well, I think any or so I the, the, particularly the last organization that I was at, I I was at it really from a, a startup through its its mid stage development, and you you get to experience just like Pheasants Forever. So when you think about the er, early employees, mm-hmm. you know you you everybody had to do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And then as you grow, you become more specialized in your own niche, and then you have to let some things go, and you have to take on new responsibilities, but it might be more in your own vertical, and you get to grow. And But you have to build it. You have to be able to build the architecture that supports the organization. And I think what people maybe miss sometimes is how complex our world mm-hmm. is in Pheasants Forever. It It's like anything. When you're not on the inside, you and, and I'm – I'm still learning, believe me. I, it's much more complex, I think, than I even anticipated in that we, we're dealing with landowners and partner organizations and agencies at state and federal levels. And then, you know, you think just about the seed. Mm-hmm. The seed alone is so complicated mm-hmm. because every state, every county, everybody has a different compilation that they want to, want to put together. That's really representative of how we do our jobs. Mm-hmm. And you think about how complex contracts are on granting and how the compliant we have to be and it's really really important that we Mm -hmm. think about all of those things so being able to come from organizations and and working with them from the ground up you know the company i was uh, at takeda before i was at horizon it was the same thing we were just building our north american presence and I'm trying to think when we I first interviewed there, I think we had like four offices on a half a floor. And then at some point they were, you know, well over 3,000 employees mm-hmm. in the United States. Scaling that is takes a lot of, of teamwork. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have some growing pains along the way. But I, I think that's probably where the board saw the most value is that I've been able to to learn from those opportunities and, and bring that to the organization because we do – have a lot of complexity yeah, here. It, it's one of the things that when I went from the baseball world into, you know, my first job, uh, public relations director with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, first job here, and it wasn't even Quail Forever at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> but you're right. Like, you know, you, you sign up, or I signed up for this job thinking, well, I'm, write some press releases, do some things, promote conservation. And then you just learn the variety of stakeholder audiences as you mentioned the political component the agency component 
corporate partner component, the volunteers, the members, and you start listing all the audiences and it, you start to feel like, oh, it takes a lot of different avenues that lead to an acre habitat on the ground and being able to navigate all that effectively as the organization grows from, you know, a little bird club into <laughs> a force for conservation of the uplands. Um, it, there's a progression there that is very layered and very complex. Um, so I've, I witnessed that 20 years ago um, and it's even more yeah. so today. Um, volunteerism. So we've talked a lot about your career path and education, but anybody who knows you knows that the volunteer component of your background is equal to your, your, your paid for career, right? Explain a little bit for the listener that it's like, what, what, what do you mean about volunteerism and how, why that's important to you? I would tell you that they've had equal parts in my life. Hmm. I, I can't imagine my life without volunteering. It it was established in us as as young kids, and w- my parents didn't have treasure to give, so they always gave time and talent. And it might not have been organized. Sometimes it was organized. It was for their church or their the local school. You know, our the the school that my older siblings went to was two two and a half miles from our house. It was a one room schoolhouse, and you know, my mom drove the bus Hmm. or the the car that picked up the kids in the area and and took them over there. They were always willing, not just willing. They were happy to help. They felt it was their responsibility to help. Hmm. And if it was a neighbor, if it was a family member, if it was a cousin, it didn't matter. They were just always there with that giving spirit. And so I think they just taught that to us through example. And... And then I, you know, I, I guess I always felt like that was just part of it. So I was in student government in high school. It, it just felt like it was part of the responsibility, part of my own DNA that I needed to embrace. And then once we got into the dog world, that was when I really got into volunteering. And it, most people that know Clyde and I, are, they know that we're intense sometimes. <laughs> and we jumped in with both feet. And we're like, oh my God, we're not going to just have dogs. We're going to start a kennel and we're going to become apprentices and become judges and clinicians. And so hmm. we did. We jumped and we started a chapter right away. I mean, we went to a meeting and we started a chapter. Wow. And then we started another chapter. And we this moved, is a chapter of Navda. Yeah, it was a Navda chapter. Then we moved to Illinois and we started a chapter there. And then hmm. we moved to southern or northern Wisconsin and we started another chapter. So it, it just... You know, that volunteerism is mm-hmm. part of, I think, to me, I just treat it as a responsibility, but it's a responsibility that I love. So mm-hmm. I've been on chambers and lots of professional associations along the way and and certainly joined Pheasants Forever and then, because I, I got exposed to them through NAVDA and RGS and Delta Waterfall and Ducks Unlimited. I mean, my my coffee table, I'm sure, looks just like yours. <laughs> And right. that is full of groups. Yeah, yeah, a ton of information that I wish I could tap into every month, but I can't quite get to it. <laughs> but it has just always been part of who I am. And in yeah. fact, when I took this role, I said to the board, you know, I, I'm chairing a, a different um, organization in Illinois. I'm like, do I have to give it up? Mm. Because I still feel like there's part of me that still needs to stay connected as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And certainly we, we're still in, engaged with our local NAVDA chapter as well. But 
I, I, I just can't imagine myself not having that part of who I am. When you think about the volunteering piece of it in the giving back, but what do you feel like you get the most out of? Why, what, what's the benefit for you? Probably mostly the social connections. When mm-hmm. I think about my deepest friendships have come from my volunteering days. And I think that's when you think about when you do things with people that you want to do, mm-hmm. you're usually with people you want to be with. Yep. And you get to create really long-lasting memories. I think the other thing, particularly when you think about Pheasants Forever, is you're, you're also creating something that you can look at mm-hmm. and experience and feel and feel like you really made a difference. Yeah. And I suppose we overinflate our own egos if we say it's about legacy, but it is about having an impact on something greater than just yourself or your pocketbook. Yeah. When I do interviews for this podcast with, like we we did one a couple weeks, well, it's I guess a couple months ago now, um, Next Generation of Forever Volunteers, volunteers that have been sort of selected by their peers as, you know, doing great things. It, it, they mirror your answer, like, identically. Mm-hmm. You know, great friendships created through volunteering. You can see the results on the ground. And to some level, it's like you want to leave the world a better place. Yeah. And that's you know, great. It, it, it really does. And thank it God we of, have our volunteers mm-hmm. and the chapters that we have. And it is so fun to watch them. I, it was probably the, the best thing about Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic mm-hmm. this year was watching people interact with each other. And they're in these like-minded people in a like-minded space. Mm-hmm. And and there's there was such an amazing vibe because yep. of it. Yeah, it, it the energy, the vibe, the electricity is it, it, you can't replicate it any other way. No, you know, I, it, even when you do a project for work, mm-hmm. um, I suppose maybe it's a little different now because we both are in a in a in a, a field that we're also like super passionate about right. personally. Right. But you can it, you'll feel rewarded at the end. Mm-hmm. But I think because it's it's different because you're getting paid to do it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel as altruistic or organic, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned volunteering with NAVDA first, and then you came to Pheasants Forever. Talk about your Pheasants Forever journey, how it started, and the progression to the board of directors. So I knew Nancy Annisfield, who was a Pheasants Forever board member through NAVDA. Mm-hmm. We... Um, we're both active and running dogs at the Invitational. I, she's a photographer at a lot of our events, and it's really how I got to know her. And and she had mentioned to Howard that, you know, Marilyn is the the president of NAVDA, which, of course, is a volunteer position, but, you know, perhaps there's a way that we can en- enrich the relationship between NAVDA and Pheasants Forever, and maybe we should codify that t- to some degree by mm-hmm. seeing if she would be interested in the board. And, and so Howard reached out to me and asked me, you know, to have a conversation, um, actually had a meeting in that room right next door. <laughs> and we talked a lot about what they wanted to add to their board, mm-hmm. because that's what I wanted to know, like, am I the right fit? Mm. And they knew that I brought a passion for what a lot of our members and our listeners love, which is their bird dogs. Mm-hmm. I think they also, and they enunciated is like, we're trying to figure out how we get women more involved mm-hmm. because we know when women are involved, the whole family's involved. Mm-hmm. 
and they could see that that had really happened in Navda, and they wanted to see how, and I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to see that it's, it's happening in our chapters all over. I mean, mm-hmm. our Women on the Wing event this year at Pheasant Fest was the biggest we've ever had, and, you know, we have 11 uh, Women on the Wing chapters, and so I, that was one of the, I think, the other reasons, too, is help us understand what we're not, know what we're not saying and doing so that people right. feel like they're welcome here. And so you've been on our board since 2015, and you've served in variety of roles during that time, too, mm-hmm. um, including helping spearhead the current strategic plan, right? And you were vice chair on the board. And I was secretary there. before that, yeah. which was, it, you know, both of those, because there's such good support from the team here, is, are, are not as, <laughs> as hefty as they sound. But, yeah, it was it was a f- great experience. And a great actually learning experience for this role because mm-hmm. the CEO's job really is to make sure that the board is well informed and, and Howard always did an amazing job of that. And, you know, our job really is to make sure that the board is aware of what we're doing, that they can participate in the strategic priorities of the organization, but not have to worry about the day to day. And, and so I would say I got to see a 30,000 foot view and now I'm, you know, at ground level. <laughs> So let's talk about that transition, right? So um, Howard quietly announces his retirement to the board a little more than two years ago, and a plan is put in place for succession. Tell me about your thought process um, deciding to throw your hat into the ring for this interview process. So I had to do a lot of thinking about it because I... I had in my mind what I thought the organization needed hmm. and or what that role should be or who that role should be filled by. And it took a couple of folks that were past board members that like shoved me in the ribs a couple of times <laughs> and said, well, why not you? Why hmm. wouldn't, why wouldn't you do it? You, you've added a lot to the board. You, you've added a lot to the strategic planning process and, and you've been a, a leader on the board, why wouldn't you think about it? And it was one of those, like, I hadn't even, it didn't mm. even what, cross my mind. What was the mind. profile in your mind? That I thought, even though Howard wasn't, and Howard was an, ex, an exceptional leader, was like, well, it probably should be someone that has a biology degree, oh, a wildlife okay. biology sure. degree. For sure. me, it was just, it seemed, it's one of those things that we, we build into our mind sure. of, of of what that should look like. Mm-hmm. And and they're like, well, he didn't, and lots of other examples in the conservation space haven't. Right. And and then and then it was it just took that that little prod for me to start thinking about, it. and then I got really excited about mm. it. And it was my best jobs in my life have been either on or leading what the leadership books call high performing teams, mm. and this is the highest performing team you're going to find hmm. because not only are you connected by your jobs, but you're connected to each other and connected to a mission in a way that most people don't get to experience in a career. Right. And it really seemed like a culmination once I let myself think about it of, yeah, this is my professional and personal world colliding in a way that makes more sense than, than I could have thought it could. Hmm. So we had Matt Kaharski on to talk about, the interview process and you know it it was lengthy with a lot of candidates from your perspective tell us about the process and you know what what stands out as you think back on it that um 
made this like the perfect fit for us? I think the process probably seemed longer to them mm. because there was a very long applicant receiving a time mm-hmm. until September. So I think it was announced in March or yep. so. They started taking applications in April. So for the people that were on that nominating committee, it probably was, I bet, it just a ton of work. Mm-hmm. So once you submitted, then the the agency got back to you and said, you know, hey, the we're... Consulting yep, yep, the consulting agency that we hired. Yep. Uh, yep. They, they, they kept us. They really... It was really very professionally done. Hmm. So... If you were an inside, what I would be con- somewhat considered an inside application, we're treated no differently than anybody else. Hmm. And so the agency that was hired by Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever to do that that process handled it with no matter if you were an inside or an outside applicant, which I think was very normalizing to the to the to the entire process. Hmm. And they did a great job of it. And so they kept us in the loop. And we, if we needed more information so that we could prepare ourselves for future presentations, they, we connected with them and we didn't call Howard or you mm. or David and say, hey, I need this for, you know, they, we didn't have a leg up and I thought that was really the right way to do it. So once they whittled it down through the application process, then they came to back to, I don't know if it was 25, 30 of us and said, here's 15 questions that we want you to answer in long form. And it was really a, that was for me, because I love to write, it was a really fun process Mm. about what have you done in your career? Give us examples of leadership, of opportunities when you've grown, when things didn't turn out the way you wanted them to, and how you would have learned from it and how you could have changed things. So we all had to make that submission. So when you think about you're on that nominating committee, now you're reading probably a minimum of six, sometimes maybe 10 pages from Right. 30 applicants right. plus their resumes and their letters and if they got letters of recommendation so that nominating committee went through a ton of work yeah. to do this then they narrowed it down i honestly don't know how many maybe eight eight to twelve somewhere in there and they did a we did it we had a they gave us um a question two questions to answer how we would answer them and we presented that um well, we actually, then we had, for, I forgot, first round of virtual interviews. And then they narrowed it down to, I think, eight or so. And then we presented um, in person to the, that nominating committee. And then they narrowed it down to two candidates that presented virtually to the, the board. Wow. You feel intimidated throughout that entire process? I mean, that seems like a pretty, I mean, that's a lengthy process, right? And um, uh, it, it just feels like it would be intimidating to go through. I think if anything, it was just hard to, you have to get engaged and then allow yourself to disconnect a little bit mm. because you were in and then out and because so much time would lapse in between. And when you think about when you apply for a job, you're like, you want it to happen. Yeah. You know, like yeah. what, especially once you're all in. Right. You're like, I'm all in. And so I think for that was probably, if anything, that people that complained about was like, well, when am I going to know? When am I going to know? When am I going to know? <laughs> right. And, and honestly it was until early january it was uh-huh. like at the end of december i think that they finally called me and so it it just was it was hard to i had to make sure i just like okay i'm, I'm i've crossed this bridge now i have to let it go and i have to let them come back to me mm. so that i didn't drive myself crazy with <laughs> how, 
psychoanalyzing. Did I do a bad job? Or am I not hearing because, mm-hmm. you know, they've moved on and, and those kinds of things. So that, that self track yeah. that was going on in my brain, I had, to, I had to turn that off now and then. So <laughs> <coughs> folks have heard your background, the process. Describe your leadership style in your words. Like what, so now you have the role. You've been the selection out of a really impressive pool, right? What's your leadership style that you're going to bring to the organization that you want people to, to, to recognize or know about? A couple of things. I appreciate you asking that. Uh, I, th- I think foundation for me for leadership is trust. And trust is a two-way street. So it's going to take a while for people to get to know me. Mm. And so I know that I, I, I will, it will take time for people to trust that I'm the right person, that I'm, that I'm going to be able to to listen and and be able to activate on those kinds of of responses that we get from people. So trust to me is a two-way street. For me, it's to assume the best intentions of our volunteers, of our partners, of our employees every day. And Mm -hmm. that I'm going to always trust that everybody comes to us from the right right perspective and hope that they treat me the same way. Mm -hmm. I trust is foundational. From there, I think curiosity is super important. I, I you know, I, I, I was telling Bob earlier that someone said to me, man, you ask a lot of questions. <laughs> and, and take a lot of and notes. And I take a lot of notes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I made me like, oh, well, I should probably put my pen down for a while. <laughs> That's how I learn. I ask questions. I write it down. So I hit all my senses. But mm. it's uh, so, you know, I'm super curious. Mm-hmm. And I want. I want to be able to like see everything from everybody's perspective because one of the things that I think I'd really like to do is to find those intersections mm-hmm. of, of challenges where we can identify opportunities and innovation of how we can come together on solutions and things. I, that's one of my favorite projects to mm-hmm. do with teams is let's get together, let's put our challenges on the table, and, and when we do that, we can find innovations together. Mm-hmm. Collab- Which speaks to the complexity component in right. your background, right? And, and the complexity of, uh, you and I just went through this with a project internally in the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks about, someone said to me, well, that seemed like a really long process to get through that. I'm like, well, when you think about how many of us had to be involved in the process, it was super complex. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do it is two things, communicate and collaborate. Mm-hmm. And so those are the other things as I will always be that person that says, hey, did you mention this to so-and-so or... I want to really try to make sure that people are communicating and mm-hmm. collaborating. And I feel like as a leader of any team, that's the most important thing you can do is to make sure that they don't get tunnel vision and just run. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, wait a minute, there is a track mm-hmm. and we all have to run in the same track. Mm-hmm. So make sure that you're not outrunning your comrades. So, you know, for me, communication and collaboration is important. I'm big on relationship building. I think cultures survive when people have relationships to each other, mm-hmm. not just a mission. And that's that's hard. We've grown a lot. Mm-hmm. And COVID changed how we work. And we have a lot more folks that are hybrid or fully remote. And so connection really requires intention. So I think about family members are really no different. You know, you have to pick up the phone. You have mm. to send a card. You have to send a text. You have to send an email. And it's it's those things that we can do for each other, I think, as well. is really important. And then I'd say the other thing that I really want, I know our organization does too, is, is the development of our staff to make sure that they're growing professionally so that they see this as an organization that's invested in them mm-hmm. and that they 
they see this as a place that they want to spend mm-hmm. the rest of their career here if they so you know so choose and if they don't that someday they wish they could come back and that they do because mm-hmm. we we do have some boomerang employees and we <laughs> we love that those are those are really good testaments right mm-hmm. so you know empowering people to to really be their best their best selves at work i've i've heard this question asked of you dozens of times already right and it, it's sort it's it's in a way a natural question. So, so the question is, what's your vision for the organization? Which is a natural question to ask a new leader. But there's also a layer of a negative connotation when that question, in my mind, is like, what's your vision for the, it's like, what are you going to change? Yeah, <laughs> right? right. But how do you, how have you been answering that? What's your vision, Marilyn, for where you're going to take the organization? I do think it's natural and it's actually, it's welcome because then it gives me the opportunity to say, this organization is as healthy as it's ever been. It's as vibrant as it's ever been. So the great news is that I asked, I was asked to take this role not to fix a darn thing, Mm -hmm. right? Our job is really to find ways to grow and make the organization scalable so that we are supported to be able to support the increased requests that we get from partners and from our chapters and everyone else. And then I try to clarify, like, so what do you mean by vision? Because I think everybody has a different different mindset about vision. Mm-hmm. And, and usually what they're really asking is, are you going to change what we do? Mm-hmm. And the what we do is mission. And what we do is make birds. And we do that through restoring creating, maintaining habitat that allows them places to nest, feed, and live. And that's not going to change. And so I think that's really important that I I let people know, like, I'm not here to change a darn thing when it comes to mission. Our mission, it is our North Star, is what we are grounded in and what we do. It's it's interesting because the first two interviews, I think about Dennis Anderson with the Star Tribune and Rob Driesline at Outdoor News, their very early questions was, are you going to – stick with the habitat mission of the organization and your answer is that's what our mission is right right <laughs> you and, bet and they both like oh good thank you <laughs> right there's there's some level relief. of relief that yeah. we're not deviating from that and that to double down on it that is the mission of the organization why we exist and you really you know earlier today we had an internal conversation along these lines and you really eloquently said uh, t- tell me about mission versus vision, because I think you articulated that really eloquently for our own employees. Okay. So mission, like I said, is it's our North Star is what we do. Mm-hmm. It's why you wake up for yourself. It's why PFQF exists, mm-hmm. right? We exist because of birds and habitat. Vision to me is what we aspire to be as people and is what we aspire to be as an organization is what we aspire to achieve. It's, it's really aspirational. It's, Mm -hmm. it's what is the best that we can achieve. And it's, um, it's, that's can evolve Mm -hmm. and it should evolve. And the other prong to that really is strategy. And what is that strategic planning process? So there's a lot of evolution in that because that's the granularity of how, what, where, when we do things and the strategy is really designed by what the mission and vision is Mm -hmm. and and that that should evolve it should change think how much it's changed Mm -hmm. 
think how much it changes just when we refresh it every year and then we do a new strate- a strategic plan every three years. It does because the world is changing yeah. so much. And I think if we hadn't revisited our strategic plan during the pandemic, we would it would have been a, a complete miss on our part right. because the world changed. Yep. And so that I think people feel better when they realize that how we do things will evolve. Mm-hmm but not what we do. Yeah, which to me <clears throat> is one of the aha moments for the connectivity between your background in the corporate pharmaceutical world. Like, and you're, even you're probably a process you went through in your own mind, like, well, the CEO is supposed to be a biologist, right? Well, we have 300-some biologists that are employees. You know, we have tremendous biologists that are guiding the mission. You're bringing the vision, you're bringing, right, we, along with the board of directors to bridge that the board to the employee to the science to figure out visionarily, if that's a word I can use. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> you could do whatever you want you on a podcast. Do, exactly. Right? But <laughs> it, 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 you think about the complexities of achieving the mission in 2023 and beyond has changed dramatically for a variety of reasons. Farm bill, pol- political nature of the country, quail forever, sage grouse initiative, all sorts of reasons, right? And you think about the complexity, the different stakeholders in bringing, okay, our North Star is our mission. The vision can adapt, can evolve on how we achieve that. And having your business mind, having gone through it with a whole variety of different structures, right? It infuses new thought processes into the organization, at least that's that's yeah. how I'm interpreting it. And I, I, I think that's that's true in that I'm going to be grounded by the science and the reality of, of what we can do, but I can bring it, it, just a different viewpoint yeah. of, of how we can think about evolution of our own, not what we do, but how we do it mm-hmm. and how we deliver it and how we partner. And and that's the part that excites me the mm-hmm. most is is watching everybody's you know working together and how we can innovate because it is going to take all of us. Mm-hmm. There there is a tremendous urgency in what we have to do right now for mission. I mean we know the statistics, right. and if we don't feel urgent, then we haven't been reading statistics and we aren't facing reality that we have to tackle this and we have to tackle it together. Right which is a natural place to put put our business management hat on for a second and do a SWOT analysis of our landscape. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I'm not looking for the depth of a strategic plan, but I think it provides insight into what you're thinking about for our listeners to, oh, yeah, you know, that, that makes sense. So when you think about the organization and where we're heading, what are the immediate strengths that come to mind? Our talent. I, I mean, it's our talent is beyond uh, reproach, quite honestly. I mean, I think about the talented people that we have on this team. Are it, It's just we're really lucky to have them. And talent that's tied to passion is, mm-hmm. is, is super important. You know, purpose in, in one's work can make a big difference and I think that does make a big difference I think the other thing that keeps us our strength is our chapters Mm -hmm. and that they keep us really grounded in the reality of applying our work 
on a local level. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't have our chapters, we wouldn't have connection points in our communities. And it, I, I used this analogy earlier, but you don't just show up at someone's house for dinner. You should be invited. And mm-hmm. that's what our chapters allow us and our staff to be invited to the party. And without that invitation, I think it would be so much harder to do our job. So I I think having that really unique model that we have bridges both our internal structure and our volunteers is what makes our work so effective and efficient. I'm a big believer in self-awareness, right? And the power of self-awareness, which means knowing weaknesses too. So when you think about weaknesses of the organization, what, uh, what comes to mind? Uh, weaknesses. I would say uh, our rapid growth mm-hmm. has, has been a bit of a, a trouble spot when you think about when kids grow, and if they grow really, really fast, sometimes they, they can easily fracture a bone. Mm. And, and when you grow really fast, sometimes everything doesn't catch up around you. Um, so a, a vet would use an analogy like when, when some some puppies get growing pains in their legs. It's because their bones are growing and their muscles and their tendons aren't keeping up with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the thing that we're all feeling right mm-hmm. now is we grew really, really fast, particularly on the field level, and our support staff internally are feeling super stretched. Right. So those tendons and muscles are just holding on and hoping that things get a little calmer down the road. So I, I think that's definitely something that we know we have to address. And I'd say the other thing that makes it really challenging for us is our geographic dispersion. Mm. So it's really great that we have people spread across quail country and and quail country in the southwest and sage grouse country and pheasants. But between geographic and, and bird dispersion, that makes it challenging. Mm. And so it requires a lot of intentional on, on our part to stay connected to each other and to each other's work. Yeah. It makes it, we don't have to have it as a weakness, but if we don't pay attention to it, it will become one. The, it, it, I'm a silver linings guy too, along with self-awareness. And both of those to me, while they're true weaknesses in terms of things we got to address, they speak to the need for our organization and our mission. The fact that we are growing super fast and we are wanted all over the darn country, mm-hmm. right? It, there's a niche that we are filling. We just need to figure out how to <laughs> service everybody, yeah, right? Right, exactly. But, that, but the good news is, you know, there's more demand there's than there ever. There's opportunity, right. yeah. And that's the next letter. Next, there you go. So, you, you've done this segue. before. <laughs> <laughs> so when I think about opportunities, yes. I mean, think about Quail Forever, how mm-hmm. quickly we have grown that team. Mm-hmm. And that at some point, you know, our quail forever biology team is going to be as big as, as our, our field team and our pheasants forever mm-hmm. side. It's remarkable. So underscore that for folks, right? Like it, 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 that just bears repeating for folks that have been with the organization for 40 years. Quail forever. So pheasants forever started in 82. Quail forever started in 05. We are approaching a point right now. 48 and 52%, I think. Right, that Mm -hmm. 48% of our employees are in the quail range, 52% are deemed pheasant range, and we understand there's some overlap there, but that's a remarkable statement to have that many employees from a growth perspective in the quail range. And it's talk about growing a new muscle. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and it's not, we don't have the luxury of 
like pheasants. Mm-hmm. It's it's bobwhites and merns and right. gambles. And so you have, you know, geographies that are very different. The habitat is really different. Mm-hmm. The skill sets are really different. It's really nuanced. Mm-hmm. And so I those I think are tremendous opportunities because no one can can have all the answers to that. But we can over time grow into that that mm-hmm. expert in that space. So I think the opportunities that we can partner in new areas is just phenomenal. And I think the other things that are really interesting from an opportunity perspective is is new partners. And you think about this whole new generation of, of, of young people that are coming to us, some from pandemic, some from just feeling like um, – they want to ex- escape that that urban upbringing that they've had. Not that they want to leave it, but they want to find another connection, mm. that spiritual connection mm-hmm. that we talked about. Mm-hmm. I think there's a generation of people that really want to experience that. Mm. And if we can find a way to really be that cornerstone for them to connect to, I think it is a tremendous opportunity because they don't just get, then they can help give Mm. back to it. And Mm -hmm. I I think they they crave it, not just to experience it, but find a way that they can be connected to it Mm. and how we find an opportunity to connect to them in those more urban centers, I think is, is a magic question, but I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. And that, if I recall correctly, that's one of the major components of your presentation to the board to ultimately earn this job, right? Yeah, it was the it was. the component of reaching new and different audiences. Yeah, I think if if we don't, right, we know that we don't we don't get all the hunters now. We don't get all the upland hunters now involved and. And if you're out there listening and you, you aren't member of any of them, and not just Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, but mm-hmm. Rough Grouse and... and Delta the, Waterfall, the, and, Ducks and Limited, you name Grouse it. Partnership. I mm-hmm. mean, and there's all kinds of other little small groups. It is important that we all support organizations that support things that we love. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there. but, you know, it's one, it's funny. I said, you know... Um, People t- talk about our rural states as those flyover states, and as organizations, we've traded major metropolitan areas as flyover mm. communities mm. because we've just said, well, you know, it's Chicago. Why would they care? Mm. But there's lots of folks that live in Chicago that go to Florida to quail hunt or, or Georgia, or they or drive to South Dakota and they pheasant hunt, mm. and and they're just looking for a way to get connected to. Mm. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to attract people from all walks of life. And that's that broadening of the base that we've talked a lot about that the more people we bring into this, uh, the bigger our allies are, but more importantly, the bigger our volunteers are as Mm -hmm. well. The last letter in the acronym Mm -hmm. threats. What do you see as threats to the organization and their mission? Well, our rapidly depleting loss of habitat Mm -hmm. ecosystems is a, pretty easy it, to that, put your finger that, on that, that was one. an easy one um you know you don't even have to be a member to know that one mm-hmm. I, I think that one's probably the one that keeps most of us awake at night mm-hmm. i think the other one that um makes me really worried is the existential loss of volunteerism in mm. in the culture of of this country i shouldn't say this country i would say society in general hmm. is that people are very apt to write a check and not not volunteer their time and that's just a huge cultural shift mm-hmm. that has happened. And we are not unique. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like that is ours to own. But it does trouble me that I think about 
we believe strongly that our volunteers and our chapters are, are part of who we are, the fabric of who we are, that's part of our success. Mm-hmm. And if we face a future where people don't want to volunteer, that's going to be really challenging because there aren't going to be enough checks written to displace the work that they do. Right. Not to mention the connections to communities and connection to mission. Mm-hmm. So that's probably one that, I, I worry a lot about is just mm. the lack of volunteers you see in general. And if you talk to anyone in nonprofits, they'll enunciate their fear about volunteerism. Yeah. The exciting thing now is we're in the midst of spring banquet season. You'll be at a banquet tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. <laughs> it's already sold out. So there is there are some good signs yes, on the horizon. Yes, absolutely. Right? Um, you know, one thing I think about is, you know, different levels are coming out of the pandemic but spring banquet season across the country has been pretty positive in terms of people getting engaged in getting out to banquets and you know if if folks are listening please check us out online at pheasantsforeverevents.org it's on the home pages of both pheasants forever and quail forever's website you can find an event near you just type in your zip code you know, populate the locus, the closest local event. And if there isn't one close to you. Start a chapter. There we go. <laughs> you know the key messages. We didn't sure. even practice that no, one. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was perfect. And if you missed the banquet, please uh, sign up and become a member. Yes, absolutely. Um, we've got great offers. Pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. If you're... If you like the song that opened up the uh, the podcast, that's uh, Trampled by Turtles. We got a collaboration with the band, pheasantsforever.org slash trampled. You can get a custom t-shirt or quailforever.org slash trampled. Um, all right. As we wrap up, um, I did save a few lightning questions okay. just right. to wrap up. <laughs> but one thing that I, I'm curious about, you know, in any job, you do what you have to, right? It's part of it, a job. But you also end up gravitating to some of the things you love doing, right? Like in my own world, I I love doing the podcast, right? That's part of the magic charm that keeps me, yeah, it's extra work, a lot of preparation and execution, but it's a passion project. When you think about this job, there will be things you'll have hard days, right? Where hard decisions, you're, the buck stops with you, yeah, right? Yeah, it does. <clears throat> but there, when the buck stops with you, you can also you know, decide some of the fun things yeah. that you want to do. What are you looking forward to? One of those we already decided on. I love to write. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited about ha- having the opportunity to write again for our journals. Yeah. I, I'm I'm really excited about that. I after the last few years, I haven't had a lot of ch- a chance to to write, so I'm excited about that for yeah. sure. So for folks, again, here's your membership pitch. If you're not a member, Marilyn is going to have a column in both the Pheasants Forever Journal and the Quail Forever Journal, and the spring issue will be your first column in each. Mm-hmm. If you become a member, <laughs> you get the journal. So that that's a pretty fun thing because it. It connects back to your communication yeah. roots, but it's also, um, it, you got a creative side to you that, like, Howard will be the first to admit, right? Like, a different personality, right? Yep. Definitely. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he he didn't write a lot of his columns, right? They were <laughs> ghostwritten, but that's yeah. something that really um, excites you. Yeah, I do. I I think it's, for me, it's that connection to our, to our members. Mm-hmm. 
and and hoping that there's something that I say in each one of those that connects to them yeah. because the, the more we connect to each other, the, the stronger our community is. Is there, when you think about writing and, and hunting and dog, is there anything um, author or piece of work that um, really stands out to you as being important to you? Um, there's two. I can't think of the, I don't know the author of the one book, but I loved Bob uh, Whaley's book, Snakefoot. Hmm. And uh, there's a book, uh, uh, a dog book, uh, non, uh, a fiction. It was called Algonquin. Hmm. And I loved that book. Hmm. I'll yeah. have to check out yeah. that. Um, couple final lightning round. Do you like to hunt with a group, hunt with one other person, um, or hunt alone? What's your preference? I don't hunt alone. I would say... Clyde is my favorite hunting partner because we, we handle our dogs well together and mm. there's we have like these silent hunts because our dogs just handle well together. Mm. But I do really like hunting with, with groups of people mm. because it creates that community at the end of the day and mm. they're like, did you see that? And <laughs> it lasts forever, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can see that same person a year later and you it's like dropping right back into that time and you go like man i can't believe you missed that bird like i had a covey of merns this year john zinnel from federal can attest it it was the truly the worst shooting i've ever done in my life i had to kick them up and i didn't drop a one i'm like i'm done i'm just out those are the hardest ones though honestly like if you can see a bird on the ground oh yeah and then you've got to track them with your eyes and your shotgun from the ground into the air. It was terrible. Like, uh, any, uh, I mean, w- we all miss those shots. Thank you, Bob. Uh, no, honestly, <laughs> I'm not like trying to suck up to my boss right now. Like that, like, it, w- it was so embarrassing. I was like, oh my God, it, I'm with the federal guy. Hey, I'm just shooting your ammo. I'm making you money. <laughs> well, I could think of. It doesn't happen that often with pheasant hunting, right? Because no. the birds will bury themselves yeah. in the grass. But like. Uh, for sure, it happens a couple times a year for me with rough grouse hunting and woodcock hunting where, I, I you know, rough grouse is sort of odd because they're such a bumpy bird. But I'll see a bird on the ground that, but it happens a fair amount with woodcock. And like you say, mm-hmm. merns hold so tight. Oh, my gosh. And the, you approach a dog on point and you see that bird in the ground, you're like, I'm screwed. <laughs> right? <There's, laughs> oh, I'm just not going to be oh quick my God. enough. I, I was terrible, yeah. And I actually had to kick them up. So, I I mean, for me to break my on, eye contact with them and then pick them up on flight, yeah. Mm. I, I, it was it was definitely not my favorite moment. <laughs> what, what was your favorite moment of last hunting season? Is there a favorite hunt? Uh, well, I suppose in hindsight... Um, the last bird we shot over Chappie. Mm. Um, and it really was nothing spectacular. But So every morning we'd drive around with the old guy in the back. Uh, we'd put the seat up in the back. And he would be on the floor in the truck. And he'd sit and he'd look out the windows. And we saw a couple of roosters. And it was pretty late season. It was cold. And, you know, he's 15. So his body was, he was not going to be able to run miles and miles at a time. So we were trying to look for an easy bird that we could, we wanted we suspected this might be the last mm-hmm. season. Is and this in North Dakota? It was in North Dakota. It was a couple miles from the family farm. And um, and we got out and we walked this little patch and a rooster got up and Clyde nailed it. And, and you know, here's this versatile champion. He's like 
such an awesome dog and he was so naughty that day and <laughs> we were laughing because he was like i'm not bringing that bird back <laughs> i heard you guys telling me this was my last one so i'm gonna get some miles out of this so mm. he paraded around for a long time with his bird and we just kind of let him but that was probably the most special time because mm. he was just lit up he was so happy and it was fun to watch him kind of just be a naughty puppy mm. <laughs> how much of your hunting season is planned for next year do you have a lot of hunts on the calendar already? yeah so it's funny we were god we were working on it this week i'm like we got to get our places set up and i <laughs> i reached out to the place in scoby that we uh we used as an airbnb last year and she mm-hmm. was like oh so we're, we're booked until december i'm like what wow yeah i'm like everybody else i'm mourning the loss of the season so i'm like okay well let's get everything planned and mm-hmm. so i'm like oh man we need to get on the book so um we 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 booked the place in Sonoida. And and now I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do in SCOBY. Mm. Um, the closest place that they wanted to refer me to was Winnipeg. I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> Winnipeg, not, that's, that's not, not, re- not even close. <laughs> like, okay. It's another country, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, I think we're going to have to figure something out. <laughs> and we're going to try to lock in some dates. We locked in some dates in, in Pier with our friends. And we, mm. we all get together. It's kind of funny. We, we all get together and we, we take over the parking lot at one of the hotels mm. there and we we grill in the parking lot mm-hmm. and i finally said you know maybe we should just rent a house <laughs> we could actually use a kitchen mm-hmm. and the stove and there's some little kids that come along now so we're going to try to do that this year so fun. we're we're patching in our dates very fun this has been a really fun conversation really insightful for listeners it, closing thought anything you want to leave our members our listeners with as we we wrap up the introduction of you as our new president and ceo well, I would echo this was a lot of fun. So I appreciate that. Thanks for making me comfortable um, in doing this. And, and I guess maybe my closing thought would be that I hope people over time get to know how passionate I am about this and that um, I really am in it with them. Mm-hmm. I don't think they'll have to wait very long. If they listen, they can hear that passion come out. Um, Folks, uh, really appreciate you joining us for this special episode to introduce Marilyn Vetter, our brand new president and CEO, only the third in the history of the entire organization's 40 years on the planet, which in and of itself, I think, is a testament to the um, the, the strength and um, the, um, the vibrancy of the organization only to have three leaders um, in 40 years. And uh, hopefully you listened to the last episode with Howard Vincent and the culmination of our call, the Uplands campaign, and you feel good about Howard and Howard's legacy. Everybody loves Howard. Hopefully you feel the same way about Marilyn. Uh, I am thrilled to have another short hair fan (laughs) (laughs) on the team. And uh, that leads to next month, uh, we have bird dogs for Habitat starting. So get ready to uh, become a member, make a donation on behalf of your favorite bird dog breed all the month of April. Um, For Marilyn Vetter, I'm Bob St. Pierre, thanking you for listening to this episode of On the wing podcast and i'll remind you always follow the dog something good will rise thanks folks